One more time. Good morning, everyone. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. In our study through the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday morning, we do find ourselves in chapter 6, right in the middle of a sermon that Jesus preached from a mount overlooking the Sea of Galilee, known as the Sermon on the Mount, obviously. But we are in chapter 6, and in chapter 6, Jesus is dealing with the proper attitude and approach towards this life and the things of this life. Now, whereas in the first section of chapter 6, he was dealing with the proper attitude towards spiritual things, in this section, which runs from verses 19 to 34, he deals with the proper attitude towards material things. And as we pointed out last time, in the first 18 verses of chapter 6, Jesus uncovered the hypocrisy of the Pharisees' religion. And it was no coincidence that after the Lord attacked the hypocrisy of their religious practices, he moves right into addressing their view of money and materialism. The reason is, inevitably, when you have false teachers and preachers, well, you're going to have greed and corruption, just as surely as night follows day. However, the scribes and Pharisees, far from feeling guilty about their greediness, actually had turned it into a virtue. You say, well, how'd they do that? Well, for them to be rich meant to be holy and blessed by God. If you were rich, they reasoned, it must be because you were really spiritual and righteous, because prosperity is a blessing from God, and God doesn't bless evil and unrighteous people. So again, even though they would do some terrible things, like throw widows out of their houses, foreclose on them, as long as it made them wealthier, they saw that as being God's stamp of approval, that they were right with God. And so against this backdrop of greed and twisted logic, Jesus begins to teach his disciples about the proper attitude towards money and possessions. Now, we're still reviewing a little bit from last time, but he does this in verses 19 to 24 by dealing with the proper attitude towards luxuries. And then in verses 25 to 34, by dealing with the proper attitude towards necessities. And so first of all, verses 19 to 24, the Lord Jesus focuses on the proper attitude towards luxuries. And he does this by contrasting two treasures located in two places, resulting from two perspectives of life rooted in two allegiances to two masters. If I haven't confused you, we uh, will go through these and you'll see. But let's read verses 19 to 24 once again. Where Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And so last week we studied, or last time we studied verses 19 to 21. And in those verses, Jesus first of all talked about two treasures. A treasure being anything that you value. And the two treasures were, were located in one of two places. He talks about treasures on earth, 
In verse 19, he said, but don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Because in verse 19, he says they're transitory. They can be stolen. They can be eaten away by rust and moth. So it doesn't make sense to use your life to store up things that are transitory, that are passing away. He said, but instead, in verse, he said, verse 20, instead, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Because these are eternal. Moth and rust can't destroy or eat away. Thieves can't break in and steal. What does it mean to lay up treasures in heaven? It simply means this. To use all that we have right now for the glory of God. All that he's given us, we use while we're still on the earth for his glory. As we said, earth can be the final destination for our wealth. Or it can be the launching pad from which we send it on up into heaven. And then he makes this penetrating statement in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we said last time, it's interesting, the Lord didn't say where your heart is, there your treasure will be. Instead, he said, your heart will always be where your treasure is. Or in other words, whatever you value in life is going to control your heart. If you value what the world has to offer, guess what? That's where your heart's going to be, and that's what's going to dominate and control your life. If, on the other hand, you value the things of God, the kingdom of God, seeing people saved, that's where your heart is going to be, that's where your treasure is going to be directed, and that's going to dominate and control your life. Now, after the Lord contrasts two treasures located in two places, he then addresses the two different perspectives that give rise to what a person will value in their life. The two perspectives found in verses 22 and 3, where Jesus said, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness... How great is that darkness? Now, as we read these verses, it almost sounds as if Jesus has moved on and is teaching on a new topic. But in reality, he is still teaching on the proper attitude towards material things. However, after talking about the treasure itself and the place where it's stored up, the Lord now deals with the perspective of life that results in what a person values here on the earth and where they lay their treasure up at in heaven or on the earth. Now, he does this by calling the eye the lamp of the body, which simply means that a lamp gives light to a dark room. Well, so too the eye is like the window of the body, of the soul, of the mind. It allows light to enter into the darkness of a person's heart and mind. It comes through the eyes. Of course, the light that Jesus is referring to here is really the truth of God. The truth of God, which is, which if focused on, will fill a person's heart and mind and life with light, which will affect the way that they live their life here on the earth. Jesus said in John 8, verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And of course, he was contrasting himself with the scribes and Pharisees as the teachers of Israel. The scribes and Pharisees were highly esteemed by the people, as we've said many times, the Jews believed if only two people made it into heaven, one would be a scribe, the other would be a Pharisee. This is how much they were revered by the Jewish people. And so everybody thought the scribes and Pharisees, when they taught in a subject, it was law, it was the truth. And Jesus said, no, no, they haven't been teaching the truth. Their heart is polluted with darkness, self-interest, greed, corruption, etc. He really blasts them in chapter 23. When we get there, you'll see. He is contrasting himself, though, with them. 
Don't listen to their teaching. It comes from man. But the words I speak, I don't speak of my own authority, but the Father who sent me, in His name I speak. This is truth that comes from God Almighty. So if you follow the light that I give, you will never walk in darkness. And of course, Paul says that that begins the moment of salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we receive the gospel, as light it came into our, the darkness of our hearts and minds. And as we received it, it brought forth light. We were new creations. Suddenly the darkness is dispelled. We see things clearly for the first time in our lives. Now, a little confusing, these verses. Let's pick it apart a little bit. In verse 22, once again, Jesus said, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. The Greek word for good is hoplus, which literally means single, but single in the sense of undivided, as in undivided loyalty. So the single eye is primarily a metaphor for a life that is totally devoted to the service of God. But this same Greek word also carries with it the idea of generosity. Romans 12, verse 8, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2, chapter 9, verse 11 and 13, and James 1, 5, all use that same Greek word in the sense of generosity. One commentator said concerning this, he said, and I quote, There seems to be a deliberate double entendre here, with haplus taking not only the theme of undivided loyalty, but also that of detachment from material concern, hence of generosity. The two themes are intertwined throughout this section. So keep that in mind. Yes, we do see, uh, and it, it, this gets a, uh, into verse 24, where Jesus, you can't serve two masters. So there's an underlying sense where the Greek word is being used as a singleness of heart, uh, a undivided loyalty. And we're not serving God and any other God or gods. But in the context here primarily, I think what's in view is the generosity aspect. Because the word for bad, here in verse 23, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. The Greek is paniras, and it's a word that usually means evil. But this Greek word can carry with it the idea of stingy or greedy. In fact, the Jews use it as kind of an idiom. For somebody who was stingy. They, they said when somebody had an evil eye, what they meant was they were people that looked upon the needy with callous indifference because they were just too greedy to help them. In fact, in the, in the law, uh, God actually mentions this. In Deuteronomy 15, verse 9, God said, Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, saying, In the seventh year, the year of release is at hand. In uh, your eye be evil against your poor brother. And you give him nothing, and he cry out to the Lord against you, it will become sin among you. So even here, God uses it, picks up on the idiom. and says, look, don't have an evil eye towards your poor brethren, where you harden your heart against them. Don't be stingy or greedy towards those who are in need. In fact, in Proverbs 28, verse 22, it says, A man with an evil eye hastens after riches. And does not consider that poverty will come upon him. So if we kind of paraphrase 
these verses using these different words that mean in the Greek different things but are consistent with uh, the passage itself and the context, it would read this way, where Jesus said, the window of the body is the eye, the body being the heart, soul, mind, etc. The window of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is generous, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is greedy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And guys, this seems to be in keeping with the whole context of verses 19 to 24. That a godly person has a generous eye towards those in need. And uses his resources to help them, which in, in turn lays up for himself treasures in heaven. Whereas an ungodly person has a greedy eye towards those in need. Doesn't help them, in fact only uses his money to lay up for himself treasures on the earth. And what is Jesus dealing with here? He's dealing with perspective. And that's why I've titled this subsection, Two Perspectives. See, your perspective of life is going to determine if you have a generous eye or a greedy eye. And really what Jesus is doing is he's contrasting, I believe, the perspective or the, the view of the righteous against the unrighteous. You know, where you're seated or where you live is going to greatly determine your perspective on life. As I've said before, the person who lives in the penthouse of a high-rise has a much different view of the city than the person who lives in the garden apartment, right? And here's the idea behind that. We as believers have been taken into the heavenly realm and seated with Christ in heavenly places. This gives us a vantage point from which to view life that no unbeliever has who is an earth dweller, as Revelation puts it. Somebody whose whole life is this earth. This is it. We're all, we all live on the earth. But these are the folks who live only for the earth and all that it has. They have a much different perspective than we do as those who have been elevated above this life and we see things from a heavenly vantage point or perspective. This greatly affects, I mean, it's night and day. Not only how we view life, but how we live our lives. Because we understand that we're no longer living only for time. That's what the unbeliever does. We are living for eternity. And that changes everything, doesn't it, guys? And so, in other words, Jesus is saying, how do you look at life? With a generous eye or a greedy eye, is life just one big opportunity to make money, you know, and accumulate wealth and possessions? Or do you see it as an opportunity to use your money to help others and to support the work of God, the work of the church and missions, which is to reach out and save souls so that people can come to the Lord Jesus? And by doing that, you store for yourselves treasures in heaven. Look, many people have... <laughs> Metaphorical myopia, or myopia, brought on by an unhealthy preoccupation with the material instead of the spiritual. And by the way, guys, Christians are not immune from this. As one author said, he said, If you're more familiar with the things of the world than the things of God, if you know your way around the shopping mall or the stock market more than your Bible, there's something wrong with your spiritual vision. I think we can all say amen to that even if it's a little painful to admit it. Now, I'm sure the Lord had in mind, primarily, the scribes and the Pharisees when he talked about a bad eye. 
and those whose hearts and lives are full of darkness. I'm thinking that he primarily was referring to the scribes and Pharisees because they especially thought of themselves as those who were spiritually enlightened and that their prosperity was the evidence that they were right with God. In reality, the light, quote-unquote, that was in them was darkness. And there's no greater darkness, spiritually speaking, than darkness that thinks it's light. In their case, of course, they're justifying of their selfishness, greed, and corruption by saying that their wealth proved they were righteous and blessed of God was the worst kind of deception. Because when darkness is mistaken for light, a person no longer sees the need to pursue light or truth because they feel they already have it. We see this all around us in false religious systems, people who think they have the truth, they have light, spiritually speaking, and yet that light, quote-unquote, is really darkness, right? You see it in, uh, in false religions and the cults and things like the New Age movement and so on, where people think that they have light. Finally, they are enlightened, and it's very difficult to try to reach a person with the true light when they already think that the darkness that they have is actually light. And there are many examples of this in our society. My wife was just telling me just the other day at work, just the other day, one of the gals she works with was saying that her daughter had just gotten married the week before. And I guess right before the wedding ceremony took place, uh, as the daughter was actually holding the bouquet, a monarch butterfly flew into the room, landed on the bouquet, and stayed there the entire day and entire night through the reception. The woman interpreted this as her dead father had come to join his granddaughter's wedding. She was fully convinced that he came back in the form of this monarch butterfly and, and stayed, and the evidence was that this thing stayed on this bouquet the whole time, didn't move. And as she's telling the story... Uh, one of the other gals was standing next to her, and she's crying, you know, and how beautiful, you know, and Cindy's just staring. She said, I didn't know what to say, you know. I, I, I didn't know really if it was the right time to really set her straight. I just kind of, I just really didn't say anything because I just felt like the Holy Spirit was just saying, be quiet. A time will come in the future when you'll be able to, but this is not really the right moment, you know. Just pray. But how sad, right? I mean, you know, we know that that so-called light is darkness. But my heart, our heart goes out to people like that because they think she's obviously tapped into a worldview, a spiritual worldview, probably uh, New Age related, where we're going to come back after we die in another form, you know. But people have bought into this and um, it's tragic because to try to back them out of that darkness, which they think is light, Bring them to the true light. Very difficult. God can do anything, but it's very difficult. What do people need? What do people need? I mean, where do they go to find true light? Well, in Isaiah 8, verse 20, as God is indicting Israel for getting into all kinds of occult practices, he said at one point, to the law and to the testimony, exclamation point. The law and testimony was the word of God. He said, if they do not speak, now he was talking about wizards and uh, mediums and, and, and we could throw in their new agers and all kinds. If they don't speak according to this word, my word, 
It is because there is no light in them. Only God's word is light, right? What did the psalmist say? David, Psalm 19, 105, Thy word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. If we walk in the light of God's truth, we will never stumble in darkness. And the Lord Jesus said that. But with regard to this, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I like what the commentator William MacDonald said with regard to this. He said, and I quote, Jesus adds the statement that if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? In other words, if you know that Christ forbids trusting earthly treasures for security, yet you do it anyway, then the teaching you have failed to obey becomes darkness. A very intense form of spiritual blindness, you cannot see riches in their true perspective, end quote. I mean, if you reject the truth, which is the light, what do you got left? Darkness, and that's what is going to happen, by the way, to this world as the Antichrist makes his appearance. Second Thessalonians 2, verses 9-11, to Paul said, Because they refused to receive the love of the truth, the gospel, the light, that they might be saved, God will therefore send them strong delusion that they might believe the lie. The lie is darkness. If a person rejects the truth of God's word, there is nothing left but demonic darkness, which passes itself off as light or truth, but is not. Now, from here, Jesus finishes up this section on the proper view of material luxuries with verse 24. He said, and I quote, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and Mammon. Now, this gets into the two allegiances, which, folks, is really the fountainhead from which all these other things flow. Who is your master? Who are you loyal to? Where does your allegiance lie? Because that will affect, really, what you treasure, what you work for, and so on. So, really, he starts at the end and works his way towards the beginning. We could say, you know, whatever your master is, That's where your perspective is going to be. That's what's going to determine where your treasure is laid up. And it's going to determine what you value in life. We could have worked it from that direction. All of this goes back to two allegiances, two masters. Now, when people read this, you can't serve two masters, Jesus said. They don't understand what Jesus is really saying here many times. Because a lot of people say they work two jobs, so they have two bosses. Or they work at a job where they have several bosses. So they read this and go, what do you mean I can't serve Two bosses. I serve two bosses every day. Lord, I don't know what you're talking about here. Are you, were you mistaken? I mean, what is this? Look, Jesus isn't talking about an employee and an employer or a boss. He's talking here about a slave and his master. In fact, the word serve comes from a Greek word that has the same root as the word slave. Jesus is talking about a slave here who serves. In the ancient world, we all know that a slave was the living possession of another human being. His master could beat him, sell him, or even kill him without fear of prosecution. He was his property. Secondly, in the ancient world, a slave literally had no rights, which meant that every minute of his life belonged to his master. In that regard, a slave couldn't serve two masters because he couldn't be owned by two masters, because he could only give one master every minute of his life. And so Jesus is saying that a person can't be a slave of money, mammon, 
and still be a slave to God. When you belong to God, you're his bond slave. Bond slave means willing or voluntary slave. And as such, you are his possession entirely and absolutely. Folks, there is no such thing as a part-time slave. There is such a thing as a part-time employee. We're not talking about that. We tend to use our Western thinking and we superimpose it on the Scriptures. When we do that, we get into trouble. That's why it's so important for us to go back to the cultural roots, to the, to the language roots, because we are 2,000 years separated and half a world apart from where these things were spoken. We can't bring them to where we are, because if we do, we're going to misinterpret them. We've got to go back to where they were first spoken to understand the idea. There is no such thing as a part-time slave, which is why Jesus said you can't serve to Masters, you can't serve God and mammon. Now, the word mammon originally came from a root which meant to entrust or to place in someone's keeping. Mammon, therefore, referred to the wealth that one entrusted to another for safekeeping. The word really didn't have any negative or bad connotations in and of itself. If they wanted to use the word in a negative way, they would couple with the word unrighteous and say, unrighteous mammon. However, as time passed, the meaning of the word moved from the passive sense of that which is entrusted to the active sense of that which a man trusts. And with the shifted meaning, the word came to be spelled with a capital or as they say today, an uppercase M, as designating a god. At that point, mammon became known as the god of money. And folks, mammon worship is as common and popular today as it ever has been. Whether you're talking about the Old Testament or you're talking about in Jesus' day, it's a problem that every one of us faces, especially living in a country like America, where we have so many blessings and so much opportunity to make money and to have material things. But as Jesus pointed out, only one God can own you, and thus you can only serve one master. So as Joshua said to the children of Israel, you've got to choose this day whom you're going to serve. You've got to choose for yourself which God you're going to serve. The God of the Bible or the gods of this world, which are numerous, but right now we're talking about mammon, the god of money. So we have to decide who we're going to... Now listen, that doesn't mean that we can't use mammon or money to serve the Lord with either, though. Okay? In fact, in Luke 16, Jesus illustrates this principle with a parable, and he often gave the principle and then illustrated it with a parable. A parable simply, the Greek word simply means to throw alongside. In other words, a parable is an earthly story that illustrates a heavenly principle. That's what it is. And Jesus illustrated this principle with a parable in Luke 16, which, as I said last time, the first time I read this as a young Christian, made absolutely no sense to me. I mean, you know, it was one of those things I had no idea what the Lord was saying here. Why don't you turn to Luke 16, and we'll read the first 13 verses as we wind this down. In Luke 16, starting in verse 1, the Lord is now going to illustrate the very principle we have been talking about. Laying up for ourselves treasures on earth or in heaven. 
he also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward. Now, a steward was somebody who um, oversaw the uh, possessions of another. Uh, wealthy people often had stewards who would be their managers of their homes, of their, of their property. And if they were a wealthy man, they usually had servants and slaves and so on. And so those servants had to be tended to, um, supplies had to be purchased and so on. So you would appoint a steward who didn't own anything that you possess, but oversaw it all. Okay, we are stewards of Christ, right? We don't own anything. Not right now, at least, but we oversee what belongs to the Lord. Someday we'll be entering into our full inheritance, and then it's all ours. So, you know. Uh, but anyways, a certain rich man had a steward. And an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So the guy was a, a bum. He was a lazy steward. He wasn't doing his job. So, you know, the rich man called him in and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be a steward. In other words, wrap things up. Okay, uh, get the books uh, brought up to date. You're out of here. Then the steward, verse 3, said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I'm not strong. I don't want to dig ditches. Can't do that. It's not strong enough or whatever. I'm ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do. That when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, what? The guy was ripped him off. And he's commending him for that? No. See, that was the problem. I misinterpreted. The master didn't commend the guy for stealing from him, basically. What he commended him for was acting shrewdly. What do you mean? He used his present circumstance to set himself up for the future. Let me say that again. He used his present situation to set himself up for the future. Jesus, in this regard, the children of darkness, the people that are unsaved, are a lot more shrewd than we are as Christians. Well, what do you mean? Well, do not unbelievers work hard many times, and they make sure that they have stored up enough for their retirement years? They use their present situation to store up for the future, right? And here we are as the children of God who believe in an eternity, and God has given to us resources, and yet we don't really use them to store for ourselves treasures in heaven. We often squander them with the things of this earth. So we have a higher calling, a greater thing to look forward to, an, an eternal reward, an inheritance in heaven. And what do we do? We don't use our present circumstances and the wealth, the money that God has given to us here on earth, we don't use that oftentimes, to really pour it into the work of God, which then allows us to have treasure stored up in heaven. He's not commending this guy because he was a, a louse, a thief. The master says, i got to give it to the guy. He was shrewd. i got to hand it to him. Not crazy about what he did, but i got to hand it to him. He was shrewd. He knew he was going to be kicked out soon, going to be fired. 
He figured, look, I'll use my position to ingratiate myself with my master's debtors. He figured, well, look, they'll take me in. I mean, I won't be on the street. I'll, I'll have friends that will look after me because I've helped them out. Verse 9, Jesus makes the application that says, I say to you, now talking to us believers, says, people, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. And again, we talked about this last time. What is the Lord saying? I believe he's saying this. Use money now to do the work of God so that when you fail, when you die, all the folks that were brought into the kingdom through the generosity that you showed in giving to the work of missions and so on, they're going to greet you someday. They're going to be the reward. They're going to be those that you can present to the, to the Lord Jesus as those that you helped to bring into the kingdom. And then he adds this, verse 10. He who is faithful in what is least is... All, is um, excuse me. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much... He who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you, to your trust, the true riches? What is he saying? You know, God tests our faithfulness with small things. For so many people, money is not a small thing. It's a big thing. In the eyes of God, it's a small thing. It only has limited value. Only while we're here on the earth. And God allows us to take something insignificant and transitory like money and use it now to invest in things that are eternal. But if we're not faithful in the little things, how can God entrust to us greater areas of responsibility? How can he call you into uh, a ministry that deals with, with this or that or the saving of souls or something else if you're not faithful in what you give to God every week? And this is not about Pastor Phil putting the squeeze on people for money. It's simply teaching the passage, okay? If we can't be faithful with something like unrighteous money, then how can God entrust to our care the true riches, the things of the kingdom of God? How can he put us as stewards over greater ministries? Verse 12, And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. One author put it this way. He said, Mammon is more than just nickels, dimes, and dollar bills. Jesus identifies mammon as a master. I believe mammon is a god, a demonic force, who wants you to be focused on him in bondage to him, and all wrapped up in him. The entire monetary system in our world right now is incredible. Truly, it is a religion requiring great faith. I was reading an article some time ago that said if suddenly a whistle was blown in the economic community and all accounts had to be settled immediately, only 10% of the debts and 10% of the cash would be real. In other words, if the music stopped in the world of financial musical chairs, 9 out of 10 people would be left without a chair because 90% of the transactions that happen in the economic world are backed by nothing. Zip. Zero. It's all faith. Even the dollar bill in your wallet doesn't say silver certificate anymore. It's a U.S. government note. Basically a promissory note. We promise to honor this. 
It's like monopoly money. Try that with your friends, okay? It's a U.S. government note backed by nothing. Economics is a risky religion. And Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon. You've got to make a choice, end quote. How true. Look, we know that Jesus is coming back soon. All the signs are there. And when the Lord comes back and we are taken to be with him, at that time, all of our money will be worthless and useless. Jesus is encouraging us, and, and that goes for gold, by the way, all right? Well, not me. I, I, don't, I put my money in gold. Well, gold is so useless in heaven. It's like asphalt on earth. He uses it to pave the streets with. It's no big deal. It's no big deal in heaven. So when, you know, when the Lord comes back, when, he, when we finally are zipped up to meet him in the clouds, at that point, all earthly riches will be worthless and useless. And so Jesus is encouraging us to use our money now for eternal purposes, the saving of souls. He said, make friends or converts for yourselves with your money so that when you die, they will be in heaven waiting to greet and rejoice with you. I like what my pastor said years ago along these lines. He said, you know, when we get to heaven, people are going to come up to us and said, you know, when I got up here, I checked the board, and it was your generosity, your gift of money that allowed the missionary to come to my village and preach the gospel, which is how I got saved, and I just wanted to say thank you. I mean, we have an incredible blessing, guys, to use the resources God has given us now to take what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. Yes, but I don't have a lot of money. You give whatever you can. The widow gave two mites, but an eighth of a penny. It's not what you give, it's how much it costs you to give that God looks at. And so use your money wisely. And uh, you've been coming here for any length of time. You know, we don't talk about money very much at Calvary. And we come to a passage that teaches on it, we'll teach it. Otherwise, you know what? Where God guides, he provides. Our prayer is, God, just keep us right where you want us to be. Keep us doing the work you've called us to do. Keep revealing to us where you are leading us, what work you want us involved in. Because I'm convinced that we always follow the Lord's lead. We'll always have enough to do the Lord's work. But what a blessing to be able to take what I can't keep and use it for what I can't lose. May God give us that heart. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for your teaching on this subject. We need, periodically, Lord, to be reminded that, you know, these treasures that we put so much stock in here on earth, you know, the big screen TVs and the, and the Blu-ray players and all, all this stuff, Lord, the surround sound and computers and all these things that we value so much, that take up so much of our time, resources, and so on, Lord, they're all going to burn someday. But if we use our wealth now for the work of the kingdom, we will have eternal rewards waiting for us in heaven. Not to mention the many souls that we can rejoice with, that you allowed us, Lord, to take what you gave us to give back to you, to use for your glory, which then you responded by giving us back treasures that never never end. What a deal. Thank you, Lord. Give us a heart 
that is totally loyal to you because, Lord, that will then affect everything we, how we view life, what we value, where we lay up our treasures. It will all flow from our loyalty to you. So thank you, Lord. Father, we just ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.